0: Welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, Wellbeing speaker, educator, and coach. I have taught and worked in schools across metropolitan and regional Australia, and I am dedicated to supporting big-hearted educators to prioritize their well-being and take courageous action despite the everyday pressures of school life. Because I want educators to know you don't have to sacrifice your health, relationships, and happiness to be a great teacher. Together, we are going to learn the lessons to help us teach well and be well. Let the learning begin. Hello, and welcome to episode 70 of the School of Wellbeing podcast. 70 episodes. Can you believe it? When I first started out, I wasn't sure if I would like or have what it takes to host a podcast. So I dipped my toe in the water and committed to 10 episodes just to see what it would be like and if it was for me. If you had told me back then that I would go on to record 70 episodes, I would never had believed you. If you have recently discovered my work and would like to know what inspires me to share Empowering Wellbeing Education with Educators, listen to episode one where I share my personal story and my hopes for the future of wellbeing education in schools and the wider community. If you are a regular listener, thank you for taking the time to listen and share the podcast each week. It makes my heart sing to know that these conversations are having a positive impact in classrooms, staff rooms and homes across the world. Creating this podcast takes a lot of time and energy and it's worth it. I am constantly blown away by the generosity of each guest and their willingness to share their knowledge and experiences so we can all learn, grow and thrive. To celebrate our 70th episode, I have a very special and powerful conversation to share with you. In this episode I talk with Dr. Nicole Lapera, or you may know her as the holistic psychologist, about her new book, How to Meet Yourself: The Workbook of Self-Discovery. But before we jump into the conversation, I wanted to let you know that enrollments for Energy by Design, my game-changing well-being program for educators is now open. Energy by Design is a program for educators that are ready to reclaim their spark and experience more energy, clarity and confidence. Over the years, I have experimented with the format and I have worked out what really works for busy and big-hearted educators. The program has evolved from a 10-week intensive experience to a four-week circuit breaker because I have seen firsthand that four weeks is long enough to see a big shift in the way you feel, function and relate to others. If you have been flirting with the idea of prioritizing your well-being, Energy by Design is for you. Energy by Design is a space to connect, share, laugh and learn with others that understand the pressures of school life and are ready to reclaim their spark. See the show notes to learn more. Now on with today's show. We all fall into conditioned habits and patterns that lead to cycles of pain, self-sabotage and self-destruction. But as today's guest, Dr. Nicole LaPera shares, we also have an innate ability to change the behaviours that no longer serve us allowing us to step into an authentic version of ourselves. By objectively and compassionately observing our physical, mental and emotional patterns, we can more clearly see what we do and do not wish to carry into our future. As a clinical psychologist in private practice, Nicole often found herself frustrated by the limitations of traditional psychotherapy. Wanting more for her patients and for herself, she began a journey to develop a united philosophy of mental, physical and spiritual health, that equips people with the tools necessary to heal themselves. In recent years, Nicole has become a leading voice in holistic psychology, helping millions of people around the world rise out of survival mode to consciously create lives they love. In her first book, How to Do the Work, Nicole offered readers a holistic framework for self-healing. Now, in her latest book, How to Meet Yourself, she shares an interactive workbook which provides readers with a roadmap to conscious awareness and the tools to create lasting change. In this episode, we discuss how often we are living our lives on autopilot, the importance of taking care of our body, why we resist rest, play and pleasure, and so much more. I hope you'll enjoy my conversation with Dr. Nicole LaPera. Nicole, welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Meg. This is quite a surreal moment for me. Because when I first started the podcast, I sat down to think about who could share information that would really help people understand themselves better. And you were at the top of my list. So to sit here to have this conversation is quite surreal. And to have this conversation about your new book, How to Meet Yourself, the workbook of self discovery, I think this is so important, particularly at this stage of. Way the world is with so much disruption, so much going on for so many people. And so to have the invitation to get to know our true selves is such a gift. So, what inspired you to write this book?
1: First and foremost, I want to say I'm honored to have been at the top of your list. And I just want to mention, interestingly, because it's going to probably tie into uh, the conversation that we have, even hearing you say, You want to talk to me about information. And there's a book attached to my name is is quite surreal for me because when I really think about myself, who I really am, I really come to realize or I came to realize how disconnected I was, how I didn't really even know what I thought, what I felt, let alone felt confident in sharing that that other people would want to care about that in the world. So I just wanted to note that because I think it really does tie into the embodiment of this journey, which... For me, the seed for this particular workbook was really planted pretty much an accumulation of all of the thought work that I have been doing and putting out in the world, but definitely highlight it. When I wrote my first book, How to Do the Work, which really centers around giving people the opportunity to come to the awareness that all of the habits, the subconscious patterning that many of us come to define ourselves by, we think we're that person, isn't really who we really are. and. You'll hear me talk a lot about becoming conscious of our habits and is really clear to me because I've lived this experience myself of how subjective we are. I like to paint the picture of being a horse, if you will, with blinders on. And so when I talk about, you know, becoming conscious of your habits to create change, to make those new choices, I really came to realize how so few of us are really aware of the different habits that really create who we are showing up to be. So to shortly answer your question, that's where the seed was planted. My inspiration was to give people a roadmap, a guidebook of how to begin to practice this conscious awareness and where to begin to look to then be present to the different habits that are creating their circumstances in life.
0: And that's what I felt was so interesting about the book, is that your first book that you mentioned, How to Do the Work, it felt like a real introduction, almost like the textbook. And this is, let's put into action. Let's apply it. Let's look at our emotional self. Let's look at our habits. Where have they come from? Are they serving us? Or maybe were they serving us to a point, but they're not serving us any longer and gently guiding us through this process? Because... I've come to learn that particularly for myself, it's hard to get there without those prompts, without having someone guide you because I have this interesting way of trying to protect myself from what I don't want to see, what's beyond the blinders.
1: Yeah, I I think that that unifies us as a human species, and myself included. And even being someone who came through right the psychology field, where I fancied myself very self aware, I knew everything there was about me. And when I would have those gentle urgings, usually from partners um, that I spent the most time with, that I was you know in those more intimate, where all of our emotional selves come up, get activated to play. When I would have gentle urgings of different perspectives of myself and my actions, I would adamantly, if I'm being honest, Meg, deny it. Tell them how they're wrong. (laughs) They don't know me. And ultimately, I think that's a really great example of how difficult Um, when I break change down into two steps and the first step will always be become conscious of where things are, what those habits are to apply to this conversation. I really want to emphasize how uncomfortable it is, just to speak to your point that you beautifully made of there's a reason why we've gotten so good at being distracted. It's painful to see to come to the awareness of those deep wounds that we've kept ourselves blinded from. So I just want to emphasize that that healing and that first step of becoming conscious is a tall order in and of itself.
0: And it's so deeply uncomfortable because we're so used to making it somebody else's fault. And I love how you've highlighted that generally it's relationships that bring up these tensions and triggers because when we're not near that person, I'm fine. But as soon as I'm near that person, I don't feel fine. And so obviously it's their fault.
1: 100%. I think it's natural, you know, if we're acknowledging, which I suggest that we make space to acknowledge that all of these habits that we're talking about, that autopilot, whatever the language is, it's it's outside of our awareness, but and it becomes at the same time our inherent, if you will, or or so we believe, way of being. So until we see all of the different unconscious steps that created that emotional reaction, which usually is the meaning that we've applied to the event. So now we're feeling physical sensations in our body. And then before we know it, we're doing something. For the many of us who have lived that unconscious cycle for a lifetime, it's really natural to not see everything below the surface and to feel, as I once did, that that thing that happened out there is the problem. You, partner, friend, family member, whoever you are, even stranger who cut me off in line, you're the cause of, my upset, my reactivity, my behavior. So I like to offer compassion and often speak to the physiology, you know, what's happening behind the scenes and to acknowledge that it's really natural to then point that finger outward until we understand and see all of the different subconscious layers that have created what we're doing or what we're expressing or how we're reacting outwardly.
0: And so, when it comes to autopilot, what does that mean for the average person? What does it look like? How can we understand that we're in this autopilot way of being, and potentially attach that to our identity? And this is just who we are.
1: So, I think a, a really common example that maybe some listeners might have heard references for those of us that that drive. We could be coming, you know, to and from work or wherever we, you know, kind of drive ourselves to regularly, and we could arrive home and come to realize that we didn't really pay attention. We weren't conscious to our ride home because maybe we had an argument with our boss or a colleague before we left, or maybe we're worried about what we're coming home to. So we're lost in our mind. Yet, miraculously, right, we drove a vehicle, which is, again, a a lot of physiological, physical things have had to happen to drive the vehicle, to keep ourselves safe, to remember the directions and to get ourselves home. So while it's a really simplistic example, The reality of it is most of us, a large majority of us are allowing our habit self or that autopilot to dictate our day. We are incredibly habitual beings. And if you become, if you begin to tune into, I should say, whether it should be your behavioral habits, what are the typical things that you do to go about your day? What are your What does your morning look like? What are your meal times look like? What does your evening time look like? If you were to just set the intention to maybe for the next week or two, just observe behaviorally, right? How you go about your day, you'll tend to see a similarity. You tend to do even if you don't believe you're a habitual being. Your mornings always kind of look the same. You might not think you have a morning routine, if you will, though you do. You just might not be tending to those familiar things you do every day. And that applies to everything beyond even our behaviors, those habits that we're kind of going about our day with. It applies to our thinking mind, how we're narrating the day, because the reality of the human mind is it is doing that. It is always seeking to make sense of the world around us, and Typically, again, more often than not, we're not narrating new stories. We're assigning the same meanings to the similar events that are happening in our life, which are then resulting in more or less habitual feelings that we tend to then experience in our body, which then translate to habitual reactions, ways of being, ways we're trying to cope then oftentimes, which is bring back your beautiful point, how we're behaving or showing up, relating to other people in our relationships or strangers or just in general in the world. So autopilot more often than not is how we're going about all of our being until of course we commit to becoming consciously aware, to becoming first, present, to what the habits are that are creating the circumstances around us so that then over time, we can make a choice with how much they align with what we want for ourselves and then begin to create new habits by making new choices consistently.
0: It's so beautiful to think what is possible once we become aware of these habits and where they're taking us. So for a listener, they're generally a big hearted human. They care deeply about others. They identify strongly as a carer. What are potentially some habits that could be keeping them stuck or even unaware that they're stuck in some way?
1: I want to share from a personal experience of being a human who for a very long time didn't find, didn't believe, let me put it this way impossibility. I would read about people creating incredible change, doing amazing things in their life. And I didn't necessarily react negatively as I think some do, though I always reserved myself as the exception. I had a limiting kind of belief system where I could see you know, possibilities in other people, but I didn't necessarily believe that they applied to me. So I just wanted to share that before I go into the care piece of things. Because I think some of us are stuck in that sort of limiting belief system where we might even hear, maybe you're even listening to me and you're subconsciously rolling your eyes. Oh yeah, Dr. Nicole, no, sure. Change is possible and maybe it is possible for you. Good for you. I'm the limitation over here, right? So again, that comes from many different factors. Again, things that we were modeled in childhood, ways that we learned to navigate our emotions and therefore, you know, make sense of the world around us, ultimately giving that or allowing that to have been my experience until I began to become conscious and actually create a change for myself. So I just like to offer that because I think that is what keeps some of us stuck, stuck in inaction Until we actually begin to string together new choices and then prove ourselves wrong. So now I can look back and be like, wow, Nicole, things were possible, you know, because I've made them possible by acting and just going a little more now specifically into caring. I think a lot of us for very well-intentioned reasons, maybe for logistical reasons, because we have a family, people around us, things that need caring or tending to I think one of the ways we become stuck is by thinking we're doing them a service, by always showing up in service of them before ourselves, where we don't even, because I very much resonate with being a people pleaser, thinking and I'm acting kind and compassionately by trying to be the good friend, the good partner, the good daughter, always showing up in service of you, only to come and find out that over time, back to this kind of reactivity, I got really resentful at you. You became the problem, not seeing the cycle of caring that wasn't allowing myself to care for me. That didn't allow me to be, and you used the kind of the oxygen mask, um, right, analogy. And as much as we want to roll our eyes at that, you know, the announcement on the plane, put your oxygen mask on first. That is the truth of the matter. Unless we're balanced, unless we're tending, or even aware that we have needs. For a very long time, I would have argued, I don't have needs. I am to service other people. My need is to show up for you until we make space for the human that we are. We will show up in service of someone else only to do ourselves that disservice and usually over time do that relationship at disservice by becoming resentful of them.
0: It was really interesting in your book when you talked about self-care, because you talked about where our beliefs and habits originate from. And I thought that was so fascinating. And I hadn't really heard it described that way before. So could you tell us where some of our beliefs and stories come about the way that we care or don't care for ourselves? In terms of, you know,
1: how we're tending or caring for ourselves. And when we're born, um, you know, as infants, we are Dependent, human infant is dependent on someone else to physically keep us alive. You know, however present or not present they are, we need someone at least some of the time, literally tending objectively to our physical needs to sustain life. We are also very, I like to think of children as, as a sponge. We're taking in all of the information that's happening around us. And in particular, in those earliest relationships, because we're so dependent on those people for our literal survival. So in terms of when we wanna talk about you know, how we're caring for our body and what we come to believe about that, it not only is a factor of how present, how consistently present were the caregivers around us, how were they tending to our body? Because that's ultimately gonna be one of the ways that we learn over time how to tend to and therefore how to feel about our own body. But another piece of information that we're always taking in is how they're caring and how they feel, those around us, that is about their own bodies. That statement, you know, do as I say, not as I do is it's a nice idea concept, though in reality, it is what we're seeing, how we're seeing the adults around us. We're having a conversation about children, right? How we're seeing the adults around us care for their physical bodies, how we're experiencing their feelings, what are their body beliefs, which oftentimes, right? If we don't, we feel shameful about our body, we might not be likely to care for its needs. We might deny its needs. We might harm its needs, right? So if we're seeing that happen, that's going to impact then not only what we're doing, how we're tending to our own body, but ultimately how we feel about ourselves and our physical vessel.
0: And I think this is a part of the well-being, self-care conversation that is not often talked about, the role models in our lives, how we have seen the adults in our lives make time for their own needs, to articulate their wants, their desires. So how can this show up for us in our own adulthood?
1: Yeah, I think that, you know, it, it is something that is greatly impactful, though not talked about, especially outside of you know, the really obvious, right, moments of seeing or having uh, care or modeled to us active self-harm. And the reason I'm I'm sharing this is because I come from a family who didn't necessarily have a focus in terms of physical care on, on wellness, on care. Most of the messaging and behaviors in my family who, you know, coming from a mother who had chronic pain issues, I have an older sister who's 15 years older than me who had her own chronic health issues the conversation and action around physical self-care in my family was more around illness, avoiding illness, worrying about illness, not necessarily caring for health of the body itself. And what came along with that was limited movement. You know, having a mom with chronic pain, she she spent a lot of time due to her pain right in bed, was messaging around discomfort in the body and how we manage it and how we take care of when we're not feeling well and for me you know that was so so greatly impactful so that's one of i think the avenues in terms of how are we caring for our body do we a as simple as this might sound is are we aware that we have a body that we do that does have needs right for some of us right we might be eating throughout our day but we might not be aware of actually what we're eating and whether or not we're getting and giving our body the nutrients that it needs. Sleep is a huge area, right? What was modeled to us in terms of sleep was sleep a priority in my household? It wasn't. I remember being up until midnight, sometimes even later, you know, because there was no structured bedtime to have to then wake up first thing in the morning to be shuffled off to school. And sleep was not really prioritized. Movement again wasn't prioritized. So. As simple as it sounds, being aware that we're in a body, right? Looking at our habits now. Because even if we don't necessarily remember um, how bodies were tended to talked about, felt about in childhood, you'll see a living memory likely in how you're tending to talking about, feeling about, and caring about your body now. So you want to look in terms of what are you eating? How much are you moving? how much are you resting your body and that begins with are you aware that your body even has those needs that you're you're taking care of them to some extent in some way because you continue to be alive and can you then modify them in terms of how are you tending
0: this is such a powerful concept because i think for so long we focus so much on our thinking our beliefs our mind and the body has gone almost just like not acknowledged, not acknowledged in the piece. And my background as a physical education teacher, I remember coming into this thinking, where is the body? Because I know for me and my own experience, when I feel charged, when I've slept well, I'm eating pretty well, I'm moving my body. I am a different person. I think differently. I act differently. But when I'm exhausted, when I haven't been eating well, when I haven't moved, I'm different. Like I'm much more reactive. I'm irritable. My skin feels different. And yet for so long, we haven't talked about the importance of the body. And so that's why I love your work because you're bringing together the body and the mind and just how dynamic that is and how different our experience is day to day depending on this body piece.
1: I appreciate your curiosity, your questioning and your incorporation of the body, because in my field, you know, coming from uh, the field of clinical psychology, being very heavily trained in terms of the mind, I mean, the body was completely missing from my training and from my practice until I became aware of the importance of the body of our nervous system in particular. And again, I think something that's worth to mention is my whole life up through my 20s, I lived in a city. So I played sports, I should mention too, up through college. So I was always moving my body in terms of athletics. Then I lived in a city where I didn't have a car. So I was moving my body right through life to get myself literally to and from work. Yet what I wasn't doing, I come to realize is ever resting my body. I didn't allow myself, my body, because my nervous system was so dysregulated, it didn't feel safe. I was carrying tension from childhood, from being under supported and unable to allow my body to go into that parasympathetic or that state of peace and calm where rest is available to us, that even though I was always going, I think this is again, that counterintuitive piece because some of us. Over move, over exercise, over achieve in terms of the physical body, or just keep ourselves endlessly busy and doing. And the reality of it is, we don't have moments of rest, of relaxation. So I like to highlight that piece too, because I think, again, society oftentimes values and validates overdoing, overmoving. And for me, coming from a childhood that I, I'm imagining you heard me describe differently in terms of what I was modeled doing was a way to keep myself disconnected, keep my focus, keep my energy channeled outside or away from all of the discomfort of all of the emotions that lived in my body that I kept doing that until I literally reached a near breakdown as I entered my 30s where my body gave up. I started to faint. I started to have all of these symptoms of a body that was unrested for decades of time.
0: Yes, Nicole. This resonates so deeply with me because when I work with educators, I ask them five questions. In the last twenty-four hours, have you had enough sleep, movement, nourishment, rest, and quality connection? And the one piece that almost everybody looks at me with this funny look is rest. Like, uh, um, I've heard of that. Um, is that sleep? Because I'm not really good at that. But he's like, where? What is that? And then I sometimes say, dare I say, pleasure or fun. They're like, whoa, now we're like going into a whole new world. Like, so why is rest so deeply uncomfortable for B-carded humans?
1: I appreciate you bringing up the people that you work with, Megan, acknowledging, I think it's just an incredibly important conversation because pleasure, joy, interest, passion, curiosity, creativity, everything that you'll hear me talk about in the workbook are aspects of our natural being, this authentic self that we're seeking. I had none of it in my life. And when we are, when our nervous system is dysregulated, when we're in an unsafe environment, when we're not emotionally connected to in childhood to help us deal with increasing amounts of feelings, of emotions, of the stress of daily life, we shift into a survival mode is the way that I describe it. And when we are prioritizing survival, pleasure, rest, Actually feels threatening. We can't have those moments. To have pleasure, we need to be present to the pleasurable things around us. To be present, we need to be able to stop, to be still. Stillness. Living in that city my entire life, I grew up in Philadelphia, I lived in New York for a decade. There was a time I loved to travel. And one of the things I love to do is snowboard. And usually when you're out on a mountain, you're in a quiet, you know, place of the world. And every time I would be somewhere quiet. I would be so deeply uncomfortable with quiet, with stopping. I would have to literally put a noise machine on or sleep with the television on. Sitting still was never anything that I was comfortable doing. And again, the reason is even in moments where I like to to joke that I'm a self-proclaimed hippie, all I want is peace, peace and freedom. Those are the two things you'll hear me cite. Yet in a peaceful moment on that mountain, right, where I have nothing to do, but listen to the silence, go snowboard my body was so dysregulated with tension that the messages that my body was sending to my mind, my brain, because I've come to learn something I did not learn in school, that just as much as our brain is powerfully talking to our body, right? Change the way you think, change the way you feel. Our body is sending just as much, if not more messages up to our mind. So logically, right, nothing around me, nothing but peace in those moments the only messages my body was sending my mind or my brain was, was stress, was threat. So it felt uncomfortable. It was impossible for me to relax. And what would happen is many different things. Either my mind would race with things to worry about. Either I would get up and I would, I'd say, tick around. I wouldn't be able to sit still. I'd be cleaning. I'd be keeping myself busy. Or if there was someone around me, that agitation internally, I might agitate the relationship. I might bring up something that now we're in a little bit of an emotional turmoil around, and none of that was intentional. That was the agitation in my body, my mind creating, right this the reason for it, and then me reacting to that. So I think this is a really important conversation is to actually embody peace, to then be able to expand into those other things that I shared that are inherent in each of us, purpose, passion, creativity, joy, pleasure. like you very you know wisely state it. We have to first be safe in our own presence to then be connected to the world around us to then experience the world around us.
0: And so when we're in this survival mode, what are the different ways we respond to stress thinking about potentially educators in the school system? How does that look when we're in survival mode?
1: So we have all of our nervous systems go through a similar kind of reactivity process to deal with the perceived threat at hand. So, something in your environment happens and we perceive it as being stressful. The first thing that we will do is attempt to, to fight it. So, what that could look like in terms of the educators listening or any human that's relating or around other people, we could become explosive. We could become screaming. We could be yelling outward. We could be literally interpersonally fighting or maybe even sometimes physically, right? Feeling like we want to grab. The, the thing out of someone's hand that's upsetting us, right? Exploding outward. The attempt there is to create safety for ourselves by overcoming the thing that is threatening us or making us feel scared or worried or, or unstable. The next thing that we'll do if if we perceive that that threat's too big or you know we can't explode outward, we'll try to flee. We'll leave. We'll become distracted in thought. We'll leave the room entirely. Oh, I don't like what you're doing right? Student or whoever I'm educating, I might just leave, ignore, distract, pick up my phone, right? Those are common. We do that in partnerships. Those are common ways that we're fleeing or redirecting our attention, the thought being or the evolutionary drive being if I leave, right? The situation, not even physically all the time, mentally, right? If I just distract myself in thoughts or on my phone, then whatever is threatening to me is dialed down a little. If that's not possible, if I can't leave and the threat is too big, too overwhelming, then I'll disconnect entirely. I'll go away, as I call it, on my spaceship. My mind will become blank. I'll dissociate. I'll just disconnect where I'm glazed over. I'm physically here. For me, I was even going through the motions. I could even carry on a conversation. But in my state of consciousness, I was so shut down. I was so disconnected. I was, again, away on my spaceship. Another thing that we can do, and this has to do with other people around us, some of us in our early childhood have found safety by before the threat even happens, anticipating it and making it okay. People-pleasing, scanning the environment, right? Seeing the possible explosion and, you know, whatever your client, the student, whoever you're educating or dealing with over here, right? Being so attuned to their mood that you're, you're seeing when they're on the verge and you can swoop in and behaviorally, right, tend to them in a way, remove the issue, squash the threat before it becomes a threat. And that's fawning.
0: It is so powerful to think about these different ways that us as humans can respond or react to stress, because that brings us a little bit closer to our habit self. What happens to me when a student feels like, it's going the wrong way. Like, what do I go to? Do I go to shut down? you've got to shut this? Do I go to just don't look, pretend? Or do I go to that pleasing side? What happens in a staff meeting when people are talking? What happens when you've got a parent who's knocking on your door? What is your habit self? What are you bringing to the situation? And then we can ask that powerful question is, is it helping? Is it getting me where I want to go? How is that impacting my relationships?
1: And I think it's important to just focus on that first piece, which is that and extend the compassion to the reality that it immediately at least has helped. It's created that semblance of safety, that familiar, that thing that once worked, given the environmental circumstances of the relationships that you found yourself in. Because I know that a lot of us have a tendency To shame ourselves, to just overwhelmingly maybe hear this conversation, decide that it's not working. And in reality, in your nervous system, in your body, it's the only thing that has worked, right? Placating that parent who's angry. I forgot about parents factoring into the whole conversation when you're an educator, right? Dealing with other parents, other adults, right? Just telling them what they wanna hear, even though it's not the reality, it's important to honor compassionately for ourselves that that is helping in a moment, in a way, right? It's keeping you safe. And until you learn, this is where we have to insert the body again, until you become intentional about learning other ways to embody or create safety in your physical vessel, it's going to be the only way that you can rely on to feel safe in the moment. So again, a lot of us will pull back, we'll feel shameful, we'll hear a conversation like this and we'll become conscious how all of these habits are coloring our daily interactions with other people And then if we're not careful, we shame ourselves. And we have the idea that like a light switch now, we should just be different in those moments. To be different in those moments, that means doing a lot of consistent practice beforehand. dropping into the body, bringing this conversation full circle, beginning to tend to the nervous system that lives in our body by eating, by moving, by resting, by breathing in ways that can be calming so that then in those moments, you have access to safety, to embody new choices. Because until you do, you're going to be reliant on that which once worked because that's the only choice your body is going to have to find that safety again.
0: And this is such an important part of the journey for people to understand because with awareness comes so much discomfort. I often use the visualization that pretending that we're just stumbling around in the dark and one day you found, find a light switch, and that light switch is awareness. But once you turn the light on, you're not always happy with everything that you see. It's like, oh, dear, that was me. Oh, I've, oh wow. I've been contributing to some of this, and that can be deeply uncomfortable.
1: 100%. Um, it, there's a reason why we've relied on those habits. We've been in denial. We've looked away. We have blamed the external world. For me, I've lived on my spaceship, disconnected from my body. So I read about all of the tools, right? I knew about what to do. And then as I started to put them in practice, now we're met with the discomfort of living in the body that's dysregulated, that's full of tension, that's just downright uncomfortable to be in. As I peeled back that layer and turned my consciousness or my attention to my habits and my emotional world, right then I was met with a lot of deep-rooted pain, hurt, anger, grief, and then the reality i was creating in all of my relationships of disconnection of everything that i didn't want and i wanted to create differently so as all of the layering peels back again we can compassionately honor ourselves that all of these behaviors all of the habits that are coloring our world that we're typically embodying throughout the day have created safety and they've been familiar and our nervous system doesn't feels threatened in the unknown in the uncertainty of doing new things. And especially when those new things are connected to a physical body that has a lifetime of dysregulation to deep-rooted emotions that very few of us have actually learned how to be present to. Again, to speak to your beautiful point, it's more comfortable keeping our attention distracted. For me, it was more comfortable keeping myself so focused on achievement and doing until I literally couldn't do that anymore. Because when I stopped and when I became present, I became present to a lot of grief, a lot of anger, a lot of emotions that I didn't have the tools, even as a clinical psychologist, right, who was supposedly helping other people deal with their emotions. I didn't have the tools to tolerate. So my spaceship was protective. And as I began to disembark, right now, I met with all of the discomfort, the overwhelming emotions And the lack of resources and tools to deal with it, which is why it is a slow, slow journey of A, becoming conscious to all of it, and then B, creating the space to make those new choices, create those new habits.
0: And this is why your work is so powerful, because it's helping us declutter to figure out what's me, what's not me. And in your book, I love your concept of reparenting, because the four pillars of reparenting are really a pathway towards our authentic self. Would you talk to us about those?
1: Yeah. So so reparenting is, is the acknowledgement again, kind of tying together all the concepts of the of this conversation is, is how we're caring for everything from our physical to our emotional self to this authentic self, whether or not we even have space and safety to reconnect with it, is all an artifact of what we learned, right? So how are we in terms of, you know, the the caring? Consistent, disciplined ways that we care for our body, right? Not overworking, not overstepping our boundaries, creating space for our unique body. And how are we tending to our emotions? Do we have the tools? We are coping in some way, right? Often reactively. Do we have the ability? So, reparenting really simply is A, is always becoming aware of what are the habits that are coloring our world? How are we showing up? Understanding again, compassionately, that we learn them from somewhere from some environment, from some other human that they were only able to model or give us that which they learned themselves, that which they were doing themselves, right? This is again, where the greatest parenting book, even the greatest book on educating, right? Anyone only goes so far as what is that person doing in action, right? Do we then, once we're cared for physically, once we're cared for emotionally, do we have space for, for play, for those easeful moments where we're able to just be in our beingness, you know, experiencing the pleasure. I love that we went there earlier, or the joy, or just being connected to the world around us, or the reality that we're all creative, right? We all have these ideas inside of us that are our creations. We're all unique in the way we think about the world, in our perspectives, in the way we feel, and in the way that we then translate that outwardly. So it's stacking on again the reality of what is so, how are we showing up in all these different areas of our life and then being the intentional reparent to ourselves, creating the space and opportunity to begin to create new habits to do things differently so that then we can embody these different experiences in our
0: life. And how powerful is that to give ourselves that support, encouragement, compassion, wisdom, to tap into that and allow that to direct our lives.
1: I believe, Meg, that it's it's life-changing. I believe that it allows us all to return to the compassionate being that each of us are and that we have in possibility, you know, access to. And again, speaking from the person who didn't believe it, who didn't have those moments of ease, of, of joy, of passion, of purpose, of playfulness, of any of it because I was so locked in survival mode. At one point, I proclaimed actually to my partner, Lolly, who we were reading a book about a very passionate individual. I don't know if any listeners are familiar with Dr. Wayne Dyer. And he, like me, is a trained clinical psychologist. And he was writing one of his books about his own journey of reconnecting with his passion, his purpose, which was to be an author and travel and motivate individuals. And I read it from a very distanced perspective of, oh, how nice for him. At the very same time, Lolly and I like to share books. So she read it almost immediately after me and was inspired. Oh my gosh, it's, you know, this is so, I so resonate with this. Like she's so curious. She was so purposeful, so passionate. She had this like fire inside. And I at that moment proclaimed, oh, I guess I don't have that genetic chip. I guess, I guess I'm just not that being. And in terms of creativity, When I stepped out of art class in high school for the last time, you would never hear me. I would actually refute. I'm not creative. Yeah, I can do art. But right. Even back to how I intro this, I have thoughts that you want to hear, right? My own creation, my own unique way of filtering the world and sharing it. That's that's not how I resonated. I truly believed that that chip missed me. So when I go back to it, it is life changing, it truly is, is life-changing and allows us to return home to that reality that you might, like me, not feel in connection with that. But as we begin to pull back all of that onion, and as we you know proceed through the workbook that I very strategically named section three, not one or two, how to meet your authentic self, assuming that most people that pick up the book, Workbook of Self-Discovery, are interested in that section. It isn't until, again, the safety exists in my body until I'm aware of all the different filters and meanings that I'm making of the world. So I can then have the space to reconnect
0: with that home within each of us. So for people listening, what do you think could be one practice that helps them to build connection to self and trust in themselves and their body?
1: I think the foundational practice that you'll always hear uh, me acknowledge is that first step of change is becoming a conscious being even just seeing right how conscious it is that you are i have a virtual membership called the self healer circle and the first and there's many courses at this point it's been open for 3 years so every month we release a new course so there's somewhat of 40 courses in there and if you join 3 years from now there's going to be even more courses in there and we always direct new members So the first course that we ever put out which is called awakened Consciousness and the the tool because each month we talk about a concept in understandable ways and then build the bridge, give members the tool to begin to embody that practice and the tool and the tools even in How to Meet Yourself the Workbook, is a consciousness check-in, which might mean for some of us setting an alarm on the cell phone that most of us carry around every day, putting a post-it note maybe on the bathroom mirror that we revisit at least one time a day when we wake up or when we go to bed, whatever it is, setting a reminder to check in with yourself. And at that moment, when that alarm goes off, when you see that post it note, maybe it's when your friend, right, that you want to, you know, task, maybe you and your friend want to do this together and you're all each going to text each other at a certain time. And at that moment, simply notice. The first task is to notice where was your attention, right? Are you fully immersed in whatever it is that you're doing? Can you say that I'm, I'm really reading this book and I'm really into it? Or I'm washing the dishes and I'm really feeling the soap on my hands or I'm in a conversation and I'm just truly present to what it is that you're saying? Or are you lost in thought? Are you like me on a spaceship? Don't know where you're at, but not necessarily thinking of anything, right? Where is your attention? So we can then get a gauge. The more often you meet those check-ins or check in with yourself throughout the day, if more often than not, you're not present, Right. Chances are you can attest, okay, I'm in my autopilot a lot, right? My autopilot is taking me through this moment. And then you could begin to note, okay, well, what is it you were thinking about? What is it that you were paying attention to? And then you could have a bit more clarity or expand your awareness into the conversations we've been having in terms of these habits. You will probably more often than not see that you're doing the same thing or thinking the same thing or your attention is present to the same thing. So in my opinion, it's in that conscious awareness where we're turning the overhead lights on in the room, if you will, right? And we're seeing where we are without judgment. This is not, now not an opportunity for that critical voice to shame where you are or to analyze. That's another version of thinking, right? We're just literally illuminating, where's my attention? What am I doing, right? What's happening in this room that was very dark? I loved your analogy, right? What's going on here? And if we then want to incorporate our body, we could turn our attention to our body and actually check it. Okay, well, how is my body feeling? Can I even feel its presence? Can I, for me, I'm sitting on a very comfortable chair right now. Can I turn my attention to how my body feels in this chair? Then we could begin to build or extend that consciousness muscle because we're talking about body and creating safety in our body to first just checking in with the state of our body, checking in for some of us with the reality that we're in a body. Right now, right, we're not on that spaceship. Our attention isn't yesterday or in tomorrow, right? We are here in a physical body. So expanding then that consciousness, and then of course over time we could check into okay, well, how does my body feel, right? Are my my muscles feeling relaxed? Am I feeling safe, or is my heart rate a mile a minute? If you're like me, is my my muscles so tense I might as well be right hunched over in a protective stance of fear. Then we can begin to become observant of the messages my body are sending to my mind and get really intentional with shifting how my body is feeling. But all of that only begins, I know I gave a lot, with that consciousness presence, with checking in, setting the reminder because that is important. That autopilot will take you through your day. You'll be laying down to go to bed at night and be like, oh, right. If you even remember that you wanted to do something different, you probably won't do it unless you bring it to your awareness. So I definitely suggest setting the alarm, asking that, enrolling that friend, putting post-it, doing something to remind yourself because habit is strong. It's going to take over your day. And then again, just turning on the lights. What's happening here? Where am I? Where is my attention?
0: Nicole, to wrap up this incredible conversation, I'd love to invite you to finish four sentences. Are you up for that? I'm up for it. I am inspired by... I am inspired by every
1: one of you listening. I'm so inspired. Back to that limiting person. Anyone who listens to new ideas, to conversations, to the conversations, Meg, that you have on this podcast, in my opinion, are incredibly inspirational because it is in newness, in showing up differently and embodying a new experience in our individual worlds that, again, this might sound lofty, but that I believe the world begins to change. So I'm inspired by each and every one of you. I have tuned in to either me or anyone else talk about a new idea.
0: When life feels hard?
1: When life feels hard, I ground myself. I remind myself that I can be present to even hard things because my spaceship, right, had service. It adapted. It was my adaptation to keep myself away from that, which at one point was too difficult. So now, very interestingly, as counterintuitive as it is, hard things remind me or an, or an opportunity for me to remind myself that I can be present. And I have the ability to tolerate much more than I once allowed myself to.
0: An underrated skill is? Consciousness.
1: I'm surprised. I'm, so I'm sure you're not going to be surprised to hear that again, because it's so, we read about it in books, right? We roll our eyes to it. when We practice it. When we embody those conscious check-ins every moment, when we become present, More often than not, and again, I want to take back every moment because it's not possible each and every moment, but when we actually embody or do the work of becoming conscious, it's a life-changing skill in my opinion. And I'm looking forward to... I'm looking forward to seeing where the future takes me. Now that I have the ability to embrace myself and my own inner compass, I was the person who loved to plan out what I watched on television. I mean, I was so controlling of the environment around me that I was actually joking with Lolly earlier because she has been such a challenge to me. She is on a whim. Since the moment I met her, she wants to feel and do this and she would see the look of panic that would overtake my face when she was like, I feel like doing this right now. Do you want to do this? Because I was so controlled about everything from what I was watching on television to what I was eating for dinner to definitely how I was going to spend my time. So being able to feel inspired and about the uncertainty of the future now that I have the confidence that I can walk into the unknown and I can tolerate it. There's a reason why we want to control and predict and manage things and structure things in certain ways because we don't yet have that internal confidence.
0: Nicole, Thank you for the work that you are doing in the world, for going on the journey to find your authentic self so you could help us step forward into the light and do life in a way that works for us. So, thank you for your work and thank you for being a guest on the School of Wellbeing.
1: Thank you so much for having me, for having these conversations, for the work and the tools and the resources that you put out there. Anyone who is entrusted to coach, educate, be in connection with other people. Again, I believe it all begins with the individual behind that job, that role. Though, in my opinion, that is so life-changing of an experience. So thank you for everything that you do.
0: I hope this conversation has opened your mind and empowered you to take deliberate action in your life so you can feel, function, and relate better. To learn more about today's incredible guests and the wonderful work they are doing in the world, see the show notes for all the ways that you can connect. If you're ready to reclaim your spark and join me for this round of Energy by Design, my game-changing wellbeing program for educators, see the show notes for more details. If you love this show, please share it with anyone you think would benefit from listening or reach out to me on Instagram or LinkedIn and let me know what resonated most with you. To learn more about the ways that I can help you and your school community thrive, visit my website, OpenMindEducation.com. There you can book me to speak at your next event, learn more about my game-changing wellbeing programs or download my free five-step energy guide. You can find all the links from today's episode at openmindeducation.com forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the School of Wellbeing and I look forward to sharing more heartfelt conversations with you next week.